Hi, this is Steve Thomas, pastor of the First Baptist Church at Delray Beach. Welcome to our podcast. We study God's Word to apply it to our lives in order to make a difference in this life and in eternity. We hope you enjoy this message. We cry out, we cry out. Here in South Florida, it's tourist season, non-tourist season. Up north where I grew up in the Midwest, we had four seasons. I don't know if you're aware of these. It's spring, summer, fall, and winter. Here we just do sort of winter and summer. Um, but life is filled with seasons, isn't it? When you're young, it feels like you're going from one season of learning to another season of learning, right? You graduate from one school to the next school, and it's just more and more learning and more and more growth. And if you're a parent, you see that all the time. You see your kids grow and develop and explore new things and, and have new ideas, and it's such a fun time to see them grow and develop. I remember as, as a family, we moved five times. And each time we relocated, it was a new season. Um, each time uh, we, we moved into a new place, it was a time to sit down and go, okay, with Julie and I, we go, what, what are we going to do exactly? How are we going to live our lives right now? Where's our grocery store? Where's our drugstore? Where's our doctor? And how are she and I going to work together to carry out the role of parents, husband and wife, how are we going to get done what needs to be done, and uh, how is that going to work? And some seasons were just super fun, and some seasons were just really a struggle. You know, remember those seasons, just like, man, this is just tough. Uh, for us, for me particularly, it was when they were really little, and they were just balls of Play-Doh, you know what I mean? They really couldn't do anything to kids, and you're just like, man, this is just a lot of work. When are they going to say, I love you, Dad, and be able to throw the ball back to me? But that's how life is, isn't it? There's seasons that are really fun. There's seasons that are really challenging. There's seasons where you can take a break and you know that God is preparing you for something. And that's what we're going to talk about today in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. We're talking about this idea that we're all going somewhere. We're all going somewhere. Even if you feel like you've arrived in your career, even if you feel like you've gotten to where you wanted to be, you're all still going somewhere. So look with me at Acts chapter 9, verse 31. If you're new to us, we've been in the book of Acts for a while. And the book of Acts is all about what the Holy Spirit does through his, his people after Jesus ascends. It's the story of the development of the church. And we pick the story up. In verse 31 of Acts chapter 9, the word of the Lord says this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Have you had a season like that in your life where this is just peaceful? This is really nice. Things are going good. For the church, they had just come out of just a tumultuous time. Jesus had ascended. He sent the Holy Spirit. The church was born. Thousands of people responded. Lives were changed. It was an incredible, exciting time. But then it was followed by persecution. A man named Saul came along and started dragging people out of their houses and hauling them off to prison and, and really persecuting people. He oversaw at least one death. 
And then God moved in Saul's life and he became a follower of Jesus and became the church's greatest proponent, its greatest supporter. And then everybody wanted to kill Saul. The Jews wanted to kill Saul because he was one of them they couldn't explain. He was, had been one of the great scholars and now he was actually leading this church, this people of the way, against the established religious people. And so they shipped him off to Tarsus, back to his hometown. And when he left, there was calm. There was a time of peace. There was a time of the church was able to prosper and to get ready for what was next. I love how God has that rhythm in our lives. I love that he built into our lives what's called the Sabbath day. And I want you to know here at First Baptist Church, we do believe in the Sabbath day. We believe that at least one day a week should be reserved for you to rest, worship, and celebrate. It's a day when we shouldn't be doing work and shouldn't be doing things that have to be done, but it's a day for us to recover, celebrate who Jesus is. You say, well, I'm busy on Sundays or I work on Sundays. Just make it one. doesn't matter what day it is, honestly. It just needs to be a day. And that's how God built us. There's a book by men named Stolberg and Magnus called Peak Performance. And they come up with, I say come up with because to me it's pretty obvious, but they come up with this formula that they say leads to your peak performance, both physically and emotionally and mentally, and it's called the peak performance formula. And it goes like this, stress plus rest equals growth. Duh. I mean, if you've ever worked out, right, if you've ever gone out and, and been like Sammy Fitzpatrick and you got all ready to play football and you worked out a lot, Sam, you can't work the same muscle all the time, can you? You have to have a break and that muscle has to rest in order for it to rebuild, right? There's stress or work or activity and then there's rest and that results in growth and it's true spiritually where it fits perfectly into God's plan for the Sabbath. There has to be a break, a time for us to develop, a time for us to kind of take in what he's already done in our lives and prepare for what he is about to do. And that's what's happening in verse 31. There was relative peace. doesn't mean there was no more persecution. It just meant that compared to how things were, it was a time of peace and the church was able to multiply, to grow, to get to the next place. Because God is about to do something. We're going to see in two weeks, we're going to, two or three weeks, we're going to start to see how God moves in the Gentile population and includes all the Gentiles of the world in his plan as Peter encounters Cornelius in Caesarea. So God is going somewhere. And Peter is on the road with God. In verse 32, we see what God is doing through Peter. The Bible says this. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Now, Peter, remember, Peter is the one who preached at Pentecost. Peter is the leader of the church. Peter is this this one that, that Jesus raised up after his death. Remember, Jesus restores Peter and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I have an assignment for you. And so Peter is being used by God to raise up the church. And now he has Peter on kind of a 
a preaching tour. And he's going around from place to place encouraging these new churches that have popped up as a result of the persecution that spread the church all over the known world. And it says that he came down to a place to the saints who lived at Lydda. We're going to pronounce it that way. It's probably not exactly right, but it's Lydda, or another name for it is Lod or Lud. It is now the airport site of Tel Aviv in Israel. And it's about 12 miles southeast of a town called Joppa. You remember Joppa, if you know the story of Jonah, it's where he ran from the Lord from. It's where he was when God moved. He went down to Joppa. And you always go down from Jerusalem because Jerusalem sits on a hill. And he got in the he went down into the boat. And the boat went out to sea. And you know what happens after that to Jonah. Joppa is a beautiful town even today. The Mediterranean is particularly beautiful there. And so uh, we'll talk about Joppa a lot more next week when we deal with the story of Tabitha or Dorcas. But He's in this town called Lydda, which is kind of, it's kind of nowhere. I mean, it's not a well-known place. It's, there is some scholars there. There's, a, there's some trading that goes on there. It's on a trade route. But, I mean, really, it's not Athens. It's not Ephesus. It's, it's not Jerusalem. It's just kind of a place. And Peter goes to this nondescript place. And he meets a man named Aeneas. And apparently Aeneas is a part of the saints who lived at Lydda. He's a, probably a part of the church. And he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Really interesting sentence there because Aeneas, if you know your, your Greek-Roman mythology, any scholars here, Aeneas was a powerful warrior in Greek mythology. He was the defender of Rome and Troy. And that story would have been written about 700 years before this. So the readers of this Acts account by Luke would have known Aeneas as a powerful warrior, you know, a big, strong, Lee Keller kind of guy, right? Just someone who could dominate and who could control things. But it's fascinating that Peter finds him as a bedridden paralytic. So here's this man whose name means strong, powerful warrior, who's actually bedridden because he's paralyzed. The Bible doesn't say how he got paralyzed. Was it in war? Was it an accident? Was it a disease? We don't know. But when the Bible says it was eight years, it means he's not recovering. It's not something that just happened and he's going to get better. He is bedridden. He is a paralytic, and he is known as a paralytic. Also, remember, anytime the Bible uses a proper name like Aeneas, it means this is a real person. This is not a parable or some kind of an allegory. This is a real person. These are real events, real places. And so Peter meets a man who's supposed to be strong, who's not. Next verse, please. Verse 34 says this. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he arose and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. God moves through Peter to heal this man. There is no request to heal, apparently. There is no repentance of sin. It's probably Aeneas has already been a repentant believer. He's probably a part of the church. Peter is being used by God to demonstrate God's power 
in this place in the life of a man whose body has become weak. It's a powerful picture. In the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ heals you, he says. Rise and make your bed. It's very similar to Luke chapter 5 when Jesus heals a man who'd been hauled in on a cot, some kind of a conveyance, and he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And what we're seeing here is that Jesus is still at work in Lydda, just as he was when he was on earth and he was traveling throughout the Galilean region and out down through Jerusalem. Peter is being used by God to do the things that Jesus did. And it's interesting. And as a result, the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Sharon was the plain, it was the region where Lydda was, and it's, it's a place that would be like saying that the people of Delray Beach and Palm Beach County all responded. It's a, it's a city and a region. That doesn't mean that every single person responded, but it meant that the majority of people did. It's like everyone thought, this is amazing. Jesus Christ is still active here. And the people responded. So you might say, well, Steve, you know, if you look at that story, I don't really see, this is kind of, we've heard this before, right? Peter did this early in his ministry, early in the church. Why is this story here between Paul going off to Tarsus and next week when we see Peter actually raise someone from the dead? It's important to see that Peter is on a journey. He is going somewhere. He's going from the southeast to the northwest. He'll go from Lydda up to Joppa on the coast, and then he'll ultimately go up the coast about 30 more miles to Caesarea. God has him going somewhere. In the midst of this, we see Jesus use him in such a powerful way, and it gives him confidence to know that God is using me, that Jesus is still at work, and he's at work in a very interesting place. He's at work in a place that is really nowhere. It's not Jerusalem. Jesus is at work outside of Jerusalem. And he's at work in mixed company. It's, it's a place that is not really primarily Jewish. I mean, this man's name is Aeneas. That's a, that's a Greek-Roman name. And so there's a strong influence of other religions and other ethnicities. And so Peter is kind of getting used to the idea that God is gradually moving him toward the place where all, all peoples will be open and available to receive the gift of salvation. He's got him moving somewhere. So the first thing I want us to see here is that Jesus is still at work. And I would say we need to understand that Jesus is still at work today. Right here in this place. Right here in Delray Beach in South Florida. He is still at work in the same way he was at work when he walked this earth. You say, well, Steve, how, how do you know that? I mean, I mean, I, I don't see people getting healed like that, and I don't see that happening. How do we know that Jesus is still at work? Well, know this. There is so much evidence of his activity. I mean, in a simple way, general revelation is go out to the beach and watch the sunrise or watch the moon rise or look up at the stars or watch the turtles come out of the water. Enjoy this incredible environment and see this. I mean, 
could that just happen? Hold a newborn baby. Watch a young child grow and develop. Just watch the amazing things that happen as they take each developmental step. It's an amazing thing. Could that happen if God wasn't still at work? Well, some of you might say, well, you know, I think maybe that God wound up the universe and wound up the earth and he just kind of set it loose and now it's just kind of running down and I'm kind of a deist and I think that God's really not involved in day-to-day life. Well, I think there's a lot of evidence that God is at work right here in this room today. When we gather, when we worship, when we open God's word, there's a presence. Do you sense that God is here, that his Holy Spirit is present? Can you have a sense that this is just not some kind of a meeting in a group where we're going to give a bunch of self-help stuff? This, this is he's present. And in his presence, he does some important things. And one of the things he does is he convicts people of their sin. You say, well, I, what do you mean? Well, you say, well, I felt guilty from my sin. I felt bad about it. But does that mean that God's really at work? I felt bad because, you know, my wife got mad at me because I treated her bad. Is that proof that God's at work? I'm not just talking about guilt. What I'm talking about, the Spirit's conviction of sin, which tells me I, I want to turn around and go towards God. You see, often guilt just pulls us away from Him because I don't really want to see Him. I don't want to see my sin. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just away from Him. See, conviction of sin, when the Spirit's at work, it says, God, I, I want to come to you. And I want to repent of my sin. That's work only the Holy Spirit can do. And I want to encourage you, if that's happening in your life today, that's a really good thing. That means that God loves you and he's still involved in your life. When you feel that conviction to turn, that's his activity. That's evidence that he is still at work. So yeah, God is at work in creation. God is at work in his people, in his church. You say, well, Steve, I, I, you know, that's kind of subjective. Well, let me give you an objective view. So what's happening in our world today is evidence that Jesus is still at work because what's happening today is exactly what Jesus and his word predicted would happen. When you look at the wars and rumors of wars and how bad it really is, this is what the Bible talks about and promises is going to happen. When you look at the evil that's present, this is exactly what the Bible said would happen. And when you look at where we're even going economically, when you consider how a lot of cryptocurrencies are, are popping up and they're not related to any government, and you can start to see how one world government could easily form something that the Bible clearly predicts. Sometimes we see this and we go, oh, it's terrible, I'm scared, I, I hate this, I don't know what's going to happen. And we start kind of wringing our hands. I'm like, listen, when you see that, you should rejoice that Jesus is still on his throne. We're moving probably very quickly toward the time when he will come. And the world will end, quite honestly. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. We need to be excited that what Jesus promised is happening. Praise God for that. 
As much as we want everything to be okay, we need to also long for that day when we are in the new heaven and new earth and we're together in a perfect environment, in a perfect place. So the first thing is that Jesus is still at work. And second, he does big things in small places. Big things can happen in small places. You might feel like today, you know what, I, if i gotta, if I got to change another diaper, if i got to get up in the middle of the night one more time, if i got to correct that child one more time, if I've got to catch them before they run out into the street one more time, if i got to work late one more time, if i got to fix something that broke again one more time, and sometimes we just feel like we're, we're kind of treading water. We're just kind of getting through it, and we just really don't feel like anything major has happened. Let me tell you, big things happen in small places. God is very much at work in the normal things of life for his faithful followers. He prepares us for what's next. Sometimes it's times of great exhaustion, great struggle, and great stress. And sometimes it's time we can exhale and kind of take a break. But God is at work, just like he worked through Peter and Lydda. God is working in your life, even through the normal, mundane things. A great example of this is I had a roommate when I was in college, and his name's Andy Chambers, and you can Google him. He's kind of famous. Um, he was, we were all going to engineering school, and it was hard. I mean, it's hard. I wasn't a great engineering student, but I could do it. We studied all the time. When we used to visit other campuses, we were so jealous of people having fun on the weekends because we'd be like studying just to make sure we didn't fail the next, the next test because we would flunk out. And Andy and I were in school together, and when Andy was a sophomore, I'm pretty sure he was a sophomore, he felt God's call in his life to be in full-time ministry. Andy was a godly kid, and uh, I was like, dude, so are you going to transfer to, like, a Bible college, or what are you going to do? This is, a, this is engineering. We don't do this here. What, what's your plan? He goes, no, I really feel called to complete my engineering degree and then to go to seminary. To me, this was nuts. We were all looking forward to graduating, and we got tired of being poor college students where we made tomato soup out of ketchup, right? You know that you all did that. And getting a car. Buying a car, that was, the, that was the thing. Everybody that graduated, we would get cars, and, and we'd go, man, I graduated, I see this car, I'm just amazing, and we're actually making real money, and we have a place to live, and all that stuff. And he said, no, I'm going to go to seminary as soon as I graduate. It's like, dude, that's, that's something else. You're not going to really benefit from this degree, but you're going to finish it. He says, yeah, I'm going to finish it. And he did. And he went to seminary. He got his... Master Divinity degree, followed by his PhD. Um, he became a pastor, then a professor, then a dean, and now he's the provost of Missouri Baptist University in St. Louis. He's a published author. And I asked him, I said, What, when you look back at this, he goes, No, he said, My time in engineering school prepared me for my time in seminary. It prepared my mind that when I got to seminary, it was easy. It's interesting. God used the small things in a, a little place to do a huge thing for the kingdom of God. You see, God is using those small things because everything that happens 
is leading you somewhere. Everything that's going on in your life right now is taking you somewhere. There's a process that God has you in that's preparing you for what's next. You may not realize it, but he is doing that in your life right now. The process of engineering school prepared my friend Andy to go to seminary. The process of living in one city for Julie and I prepared us for living in the next city, for the next place that we were going. Kindergarten prepares you for first grade, right? That's the same thing that happens spiritually. God is taking you somewhere. The question is, are you willing to go? Are you willing to go where God wants to take you? For the last four or five months, it's been crazy that we've seen like six couples relocate. And it makes me so mad. I just, you know, I just tell you, it's just, yeah, left here, relocated here and, and moved somewhere else. And uh, I used to do the calculation. Let's see, you can still get here from Houston, right, on Sundays? It's not a problem. But only for a moment, because when you think about this place, this amazing church, these amazing people, this isn't the end for anybody, Right? God is always preparing us for what's next. Now, please, nobody get any ideas. No one else is allowed to move. You know, we, we just can't handle it. Uh, but seriously, none of us knows if we're going to be here in 10 years, five years, next year. We're trusting God with every day to prepare us for what is next. It's funny, when, when some of these couples have left, they've called and said, you know, I'm really sorry, but we've we got to move, you know? And I'm like, well, don't be sorry. It sounds like exactly where God wants to take you. It sounds like this is exactly what God is doing. See, as J.D. Greer says, we don't want to be a place that's measured, we measure our effectiveness by our seating capacity, but by our, our sending capacity. We have people who are now living in Colorado and Texas and West Palm Beach and Sunrise and pretty soon in Eastern Europe that have been blessed by you, that God used this small place to do something very big. It's an amazing thing that God does. I love that. I love that we get to be on this journey, but we don't know how long we're going to be on this journey. But we look forward to the place that God is ultimately sending us, right? Because we're all going somewhere. So today, here's my challenge to you. Look at where you're at. What is God doing right now? I love that Peter had the background that he was raised to learn in the Old Testament, and then he got to live with Jesus for three years. So he got the gospel on top of the Old Testament so that everything that, he, that happened, he saw through the lens of God's word. It's the only way we can see the world and make any sense of it. We must see it through the lens of God's word. That this world is really just the opportunity to prepare for and to populate heaven, right? That's what we're all looking forward to. So let me ask you, where are you going? Where is God taking you? We're all going somewhere. For followers of Jesus, sometimes people get off track. And sometimes being in a service like this is God drawing you back on track. And he's saying to you, you know what, I know you got frustrated, but 
but I want to draw you back and I want you to get back on track with me. And today might be a day for you to say to Jesus, I, I repent of where I was. I, I left you, but I'm, I'm back. Would you take me back in? And he will. He will. Some of you may have to say, you know what? I don't think I've ever been on the road to follow Jesus. I don't think I've ever walked with him. I don't think I've ever gone anywhere. I've never received this gift of salvation that Jesus paid for for me. See, Jesus paid for your ticket into heaven. But the only way you can receive it is to repent of your sins and admit that you actually need it. But today, God may be saying to you, I want to take you somewhere. I want you to be on the road to heaven. That's why we talk about it as following Jesus. It is a road. It is a journey. It's a place that he is taking us to. You see, Jesus is still at work. Big things happen in small places. And everything that happens is preparing you for where God is taking you. Will you follow him today? Will you look for where he wants to take you? Will you look for what he's doing right now in your life? There may be someone in your life who's hurting that you need to help heal. You need to help them on their way to follow Jesus. See, that's how we can make a difference in eternity. Look for what he's doing through the lens of Scripture. And also look down the road to where he's taking you. And sometimes it's good to look back to where you've been and see how he's taking you on this road. Today, I urge you, is there anything in the way that's keeping you from following him where he wants you to go? Is it really worth eternity? Is there something in your life that needs to change in order for you to follow him? Would you repent of that and allow him to lead you where he wants to take you? And if it's your, you've never received the gift of salvation, would you receive it today? But you have to admit that you need it. You have to repent of your sin and ask Jesus to pay for it and to give you his life and his spirit. Would you bow with me? Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to support this ministry, go to our website at fbcdelray.com. Also, click the share button so you can share this message with a friend or someone in need as we seek to know Jesus, to know others, and to make him known. We cry out, we cry out.